Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. What up and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfon? I was going to say, so both of my finalists, preseason finalists, are done. The Lakers, obviously, if anyone has been listening to the show all year, I went on that rant basically around opening day where I said I was picking them solely because I still believed a healthy LeBron and AD could get through the West, but I was ready to jump off that bandwagon at the first sign of trouble. That first sign of trouble came within like a couple weeks of the season. I was off that bandwagon, but I'll wear it. I did pick them at the beginning of the season to win the West. Pick the Nets to win the East. We all know what's happened to them, and we're going to talk about them today. Uh, so I was going to say my finalists are both gone. I forgot with you. You, I think you also picked the Nets in the East. Did you pick the Jazz? I don't remember who you picked in the West. Was it the Jazz or the Suns? You know, I don't remember. Who can remember? Who knows? It, no, no, like, no, for real, for real. It was the Jazz, <laughs> no, I right? Picked, I picked the Jazz, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. So both of my finalists are done. Um, one didn't even make the playoffs. The other one's done in round one. But I, then I was going to correct myself and say, but I think yours will be as well by the time this week is over. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you- No, no, no. My, they're already done. Mine yes. are done. The yes. Jazz are done. We will not be discussing them again on this podcast until the offseason, which could be a very interesting one for that franchise. Yeah. I'm done with them. But yeah, the, the Nets, I mean, I will say I at least had the good sense to update my predictions to recognize that it wasn't going to happen this year for Brooklyn. You picked them to to beat the Celtics in this series. And look, it wasn't, I didn't think it was some crazy prediction. I didn't agree with it, but it it wasn't egregious to me. And even last time we talked about this series, I was kind of saying, you know, that game one did support your argument in a way because they kept that game extremely close, almost pulled it out despite being at a very clear disadvantage in terms of balance, cohesion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was the third closest sweep in uh, NBA play. I mean, look, at the end of the day, they got swept. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say, oh, Brooklyn almost had them. Like they lost four games in a row. But I did just want to throw that stat out there. Sorry, we're, terms- we're not handing out moral victories right, to right. A, a team that began this season with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. Like we're just yeah, not. And Kevin um, Durant at one point saying that there's gonna be trouble for the Boston Celtics. So yeah, yeah I, I actually I want you to start because you did pick Brooklyn to win the series. And yes. so I think I want to know sort of from your perspective, what happened and how did your perspective change on the matchup on Brooklyn as a team, maybe on the Celtics as a team? Yeah. I mean, what, what went wrong? I mean, first and foremost, Kevin Durant wasn't good enough. Now those Boston Celtics have a lot to do with that. But if you recall, when we talked about the series, when I wrote about it for the preview, I essentially wrote all about, and even on our podcast talked all about the various ways and reasons why Boston is the better team. <laughs> okay. The, like, Top to bottom, they're the better team. They're the better, the more balanced team, and this and that. And Tatum had already made the superstar leap. Like, 
So none of that surprised me, but in writing about it, in talking about it, what I continued to go back to was I believe that the, the sheer star power and talent and, and on-court abilities of Kevin Durant especially, but also Kyrie Irving, would be enough that if the Nets could just find a way to play like semi-competent defense and be in games, that the power of those two guys would carry them home four out of seven. And what ended up happening was, again, Kevin Durant, honestly, I want to say for like the first time in his postseason career, or at least for the first time in a long time, just wasn't good enough in a playoff series. But credit to Celtics and that incredible defense and Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart and the switch, like, and Coach Udoka's game plan, like all of it. Um, they obviously, they're, they're the best defense in the league for a reason. They just stymied opponents the way they did the second half of the season for a reason. And they did it again to, you know, one of, if not arguably the greatest pure scorer in NBA history. So little column A, little column B there, where if you want to, if I had to explain why my prediction ended up being wrong, it's because I was relying on Kevin Durant to carry them home and Kevin Durant couldn't carry them to one win because the Celtics D is that good. And he just was that bad. It happens. Kevin Durant's at least got a postseason history where, you know, if anyone's expecting me to go on some sort of rant, like anti-postseason rant about Kevin Durant, that's not happening. He's got too much of a history for me to say. He just had a bad series and the Celtics D's that good. Kyrie, I think, had like one good game, maybe one and a half good game. He was great in game one. I didn't think he was good enough the rest of the series. I mean, from the middle of game two on, you could make a decent argument that Bruce Brown was their most consistent player. And... If Bruce Brown is Brooklyn's most consistent player in a one or two game sample, let alone in a playoff series, that's trouble. And in the end, it ended up being trouble. Now, that's all I have to say about that series. And again, Boston just continues to look excellent. They continue to look every bit basically a contender. I don't have much to say about either teams in terms of this matchup. I have some things left to say about a player that didn't play in this series. But uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about the series before I get into that. Do we have to, can we just not have that conversation? No, no I, I'm going to have that conversation. I'm going to have that conversation, but I'd, I'd like you to, I'd like you to talk Brooklyn, Boston first. All right. Why don't I use Bruce Brown then as a jumping off point? Cause I think that's interesting. And, and I think, okay, he was their most consistent player in the series. I guess that's a defensible point of view, but I think it's maybe the wrong way to look at things because think about what his role is, right? Like he did his job. He did exactly what he was supposed to do, which was, take advantage of the extra attention that was going Durant and Irving's way flash into pockets of space, hit those floaters. He even hit like 43% of his threes in this series. So it's like he was doing what he was supposed to do, which is ostensibly make Boston pay for sending all the extra bodies toward KD and Kyrie. And yet for all that, he he finishes the series averaging 14 points on 68% true shooting wonderful individual numbers. I mean, he, he, again, did exactly what he was supposed to do. And yet, the Nets offense was 15 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the court because the Celtics did not care yeah. about Bruce Brown getting his. They they could not have cared less if they left him wide open and he hit a three that did not change their coverage one iota. And that is because it is a small price to pay for them to execute their game plan on Kevin Durant to take him out of games. I mean, to, to the extent that that's actually possible. I mean, he, he still had some games when he was like mid twenties, low thirties in points, but they made it really difficult on him. They wore him out, man. He looked exhausted by the end of this series. He could not find his way to 
any clean looks, to any open space. And I, I don't have to rehash this because we talked about it before, but sort of the way that the Nets had to juggle their lineups to find the right offense-defense balance. And the way the Celtics didn't have to do that was why I thought they were going to win this series. And I think maybe the most illuminating thing to me about this series is I feel like that is typically going to be like the most important thing in a playoff matchup, more so than who has the best player. As long as it's like close. Do you know what I mean? Because like if it's, if like Kevin Durant's the best player on one team and the best player on another team is like, I don't know, DeJounte Murray or something like that. Right. That's maybe a, a, a significant enough gap that you expect the, the top end talent to carry the day. But when there is one team that has no weak links to attack, no obvious places to help off of on offense, and another team that has both, where Brooklyn has lots of weak links to attack on defense and they have a bunch of guys who on offense, the Celtics were happy to ignore that really swings things. And whether it was the fact that they just didn't have enough size on the wing where they didn't have the guys to match up with Tatum and Brown at the same time, right? It's like Durant's having to handle the Tatum assignment. And then Bruce Brown is doing his damnedest on, on Jalen Brown, but he's still giving up a ton of size there. And when Bruce Brown has to come off the floor because he's compromising the offense, it's like Kyrie's got to guard Jalen Brown or Seth Curry's got to guard him. And the, the the Celtics were just taking advantage of that, man. Like picking on those weak spots time and time again. And the Nets couldn't do that. They had nowhere to attack. Like the one guy was Peyton Pritchard. Like when Peyton Pritchard was on the floor, which he wasn't very often, but even when he was, that was the one guy they could attack. And they couldn't even do that effectively because when they would, you know, put him in screening action to try and get him switched on to KD, the Celtics were just scramming it out or they were shading enough help that way that like the drive wasn't there anyway. So he's still having to settle for like a semi-contested jump shot. And because of that, you know, in a vacuum, is Jason Tatum a better player than Kevin Durant? Uh, you know, that, so that this, I was going to ask you this. That's not because obviously it's easy, you know, to be like, well, for the next five years, anyone would take Tatum because of their ages. So I'm going to, I'm going to pose the question to you like this for the next year. Yeah. So basically say, well, this playoffs, obviously Tatum's the only one left, but say going into next season, next season only, forget about a long, long-term future. Just going into next season, you had to pick to who to start a team with or who, you, who you'd have throughout, throughout a season. Jason Tatum going into 2022, 2023, or Kevin Durant? Tatum. Yeah, I'd agree. And Dur- I know Durant's going to be 34 by the time next yeah. season starts. The injuries are piling up. He's missed 64 games combined in the two years since coming off an Achilles tear. I don't know how much longer he can hold up at the defensive end of the floor. I think it's pretty incredible that he has held up as well as he has to this point. But, man, he he got to the rim so infrequently this season. Yeah, 14% of his shots at the rim. It didn't affect his efficiency because of how well he shot those jumpers. But I think we saw in this series... You know, I don't know if that's a sustainable formula for success. Like, it, it was, I think, 14% in the regular season, 12% of his shots in this series came at the rim. And I'd be curious, actually, to know how many of those were even in the half court and how many of them were just sort of like runouts and transition. Right. Because in the half court, he could not do anything. And I think it was, I, I think it revealed a little bit like the waning athleticism, right? Like, he couldn't, he couldn't get around Grant Williams. He couldn't get around Al Horford. And yeah, there are guys digging from the strong side, like getting into his driving lanes, making him pick up his dribble. But 
I think that he was kind of lacking the agility to actually get where he needed to go. And then I'm thinking about it, like, you know, stacking it up skill for skill. Obviously he still has the shooting on Tatum. That's a massive thing. Like Tatum is a middling efficiency scorer, you know, 55, 56% true shooting. KD is going to be in like the mid sixties, even given all the, the declining athleticism, whatever, like he's going to shoot the shit out of the ball. He's still going to be a seven footer who can hit pretty much any shot, which is going to allow his offensive game to age pretty gracefully, I think. But man, playmaking, I think Tatum's got him there now. Ball handling, pretty much level. Getting to the rim, Tatum has him. Defense, Tatum has him. Like, I don't know, man. I so, don't think it's crazy to say to, to say that Tatum is a better player. But 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 I didn't even want to actually have this conversation. What I wanted to say <laughs> is, like, e- even if you even if you were to just say no, Katie's better in a vacuum, which I think is a fine point to make. Tatum was a much better player in this series, yeah, because of what KD had to deal with versus what Tatum had to deal with. Because the, the Nets defense couldn't do to Tatum what the Celtics defense did to KD, so it's not really fair to stack them up in that way, because it's not a mono e mono thing. The and Nets defense couldn't do to you what the Celtics <laughs> did to KD. Okay, they could for sure, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so 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 that's a big thing that I'm looking at and just saying like, you know, in terms of stacking up these matchups, as long as that top end talent is relatively comparable, I don't think what, what we should be looking at is just, Oh, this team has the best player. And so they have the edge. They're going to win the series. I think when there are this many kind of matchup imbalances tilting in one direction, that that really can swing it. And it it wasn't just Tatum out, out playing KD, man. It was also like, Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown outplaying Kyrie. Those guys were better than Kyrie in this series. Marcus Smart did an incredible job of piloting that Celtics offense. I mean, directing traffic, moving guys into like exactly the right spots in a way that was beneficial to the entire team. Whereas like Kyrie, as brilliant of a ball handler and shot maker and a passer, like Kyrie's a good passer too, man. But he doesn't do that. Like, I'm sorry. He he is not that guy who can just like take the controls and organize an offense in that way. Like I thought Smart ran circles around him in terms of offensive orchestration in this series. And we can, I guess, talk about what, like what that means for the Nets long-term. Like the, the piece that I wrote, I kind of asked the question, is this a bump in the road or is this kind of what we should expect from this team moving forward? I don't really know the answer to that question because they're, are obviously a lot of factors and a lot of questions looming, but I, I think they were just so totally outclassed in this series. And I mean, it's a, it's a huge credit to Boston. I think they played great. I think they're a wonderful team. I mean, they might be straight up the favorite in the Eastern conference right now, but I also think it was an indictment of the nets in a lot of different yep. ways. And uh, I, I'm not, I, I'm not sure moving forward what it looks like. I what think, think the Nets have. What do you think? Is this is this a bump in the road, or is this the new normal for this iteration of the Nets? I think it's the new normal. I think they have one year left where they could compete if everything goes right. I don't think there's any reason to believe everything will go right for this specific collection of players at this point in their careers. But I do think they have potentially one more year where they could contend for a title if things go right. And then I think they're getting dangerously close to going back to almost the depths that this franchise was in before they started on the way up under Sean Marks because you start looking at whether it's Durant's age, 
um, you know, wh- whether they want to give Kyrie a big long-term call, like a bunch of things, the question marks around Simmons. Then you start looking at the draft pick situation. Like there are a lot of reasons to believe that within a couple years, the Nets are going to be back to a pretty depressing ass franchise in terms of not being good enough to compete, not having the draft capital to do anything about it. Like they, I know they got some picks back in the, in the Harden Simmons trade, but they also, because of all the picks they got rid of to get Harden and other moves, they don't control their own first round pick. Like they've got some swaps, but in terms of controlling their own first round pick outright, I think it's till 2028. Like, there are a lot of reasons to believe it might not get quite as bad as it once did when they had literally no picks and they were giving up like the you know top picks every year to um, to the Celtics, but it's going to get bad. It really will. And uh, and I think again, if you know Kevin Durant has a fully healthy year next year, if Kyrie's actually available seventy five to eighty percent of the time next year, Ben Simmons comes back and is decent. Like there are a lot of ifs, but sure, if those things happen, of course they can compete next year. I think all that's unlikely, but it could happen. But you should go beyond next year, and I think I think it's going to get pretty desperate in Brooklyn. Um, I do think health is the big one. You know, like if they get healthy, and in Kyrie's case, it's it's not necessarily just a question of health, like availability with Kyrie for one reason or another. If he's available for the majority of the season, if KD is healthy, yeah. if Simmons plays, if Ben Simmons remembers how to play basketball and shakes the yips. I think we haven't talked really about Joe Harris. His absence, I, I thought, was yep. pretty huge for Brooklyn. And in turn, you know, he's not some lockdown defender, but he actually has the size to defend wings. And I think that makes a big difference. Like him and Simmons being back in the fray goes a long way toward answering those questions about the lack of size on the wing. And, you know, in Harris's case, at least a little bit that the offense defense balance. So, you know, maybe interior defense is probably still going to be an issue. I'm curious to see what happens with with Claxton, actually, because he is an RFA. And they do need his rim protection. But just like Bruce Brown, man, their offense kind of died on the vine with him on the floor. And he, he also broke Shaq's record for most consecutive missed free throws to start free, a playoff yeah, game. Yeah, his free throw shooting was a huge issue down the stretch of a couple of these games. And then it was also even just in the pick and roll. Like, he's a, a finisher, right? Like, that's, that's his job. That's what he does. Yeah. But... I didn't think he was really able to make the Celtics pay in any defensive coverage, like whether they were switching or whether they were putting two on the ball in, in no circumstance was he really able to punish them. So I, I feel like they'll probably end up bringing him back just a, because of the restricted status and, and B because they do need him defending on that back line. But I don't know. That's going to be an interesting case to see how much they value him and how much they feel like they need him. And same with Bruce Brown, right? Like with Simmons, ostensibly entering the fold. Uh, I think Bruce Brown's actually an unrestricted free agent. So what kind of effort do they make to bring him back, knowing that there's probably going to be a lot of overlap there in terms of how they use those two guys uh, and in terms of like the offensive issues that he can pose for them in a playoff series. I think that's going to be really fascinating. But I, I do feel like Simmons, whatever you want to say about him, he will help the defense. He will answer some questions on that side of the ball. If, if he plays without, basketball. Without a doubt. If he plays basketball. If, if he plays basketball. Um, and I, I do, you know, look, a full offseason together, ideally, if you're a Nets fan or a member of the Nets organization, ideally, you get something close to a full season where your best players are available and not shuttling in and out of the lineup basically every other game. And you can build some more chemistry and cohesion and figure out a play style 
that works better for this team because I think that there are a lot of teams around the league that can get by with like playing multiple non-shooters at the same time, right? The Warriors do it, the Heat do it, but those teams do it by running these like pretty ornate movement heavy offensive systems that are predicated on dribble handoffs and split cuts and all this stuff that can confuse a defense even without the benefit of like four or five out spacing. But I think the Nets, I feel like a lot of that stuff needs to get smoothed out, but they still have a boatload of shooting and a boatload of individual shot creation. And I don't think you can just like count out a team that has that much of those specific skills on the roster, especially if you, if you couple it with a player as defensively impactful as Ben Simmons. Yeah. I I don't disagree with that. All right. You, you want to, you want to, Walk out of the room while I talk. Will I go on a Simmons rant or whatever? I, I don't know if I, I will stay here and tolerate it. I mean, this is okay. We're Here's here what to do. To we got to bring we got to bring the fire and ice dynamic. So bring the fire. Here's what I have to say. I'm not going to sit here and tell you whether or not he has or has been dealing with legitimate mental. Like that's not for me to decipher. Not going to try to. I've I've been on the record, I, I, you know, earlier in this year, in saying that I legitimately think this guy had or and or has the yips, which you know, athletes have had. It's 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 a thing. Like whether you want to say he needs a sports psychiatrist, whatever the case may be, the, if you watched him last year in that playoff series, the guy had the yips. It's like he had no confidence left in his abilities. But as I've been saying the whole time, if we are to believe that he does have legitimate mental health issues right now, that that's the impediment, you know, between him and playing basketball again. And, you know, there's a lot of people on Twitter in the media as well saying, you know, we like shouldn't rag on Ben because he's going through these mental health issues. If he came out and said he had these issues and then he took a break and didn't want to play and was out of the limelight and wasn't saying anything and his camp wasn't leaking stuff, fine. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have your camp leaking these ridiculous stories all year. And let's be honest. We know where those are. Oh, he's, he's ramping up. He looks so good. He look, Where are those coming from, man? Those are coming from his camp. He wants those out there. Him and his camp and or team want those out there. You can't be doing that all year and teasing your return. You can't have a specific target on it for game four and then at the last minute decide you don't want to play and expect no blowback. But like, why, why do you think that would be coming from his camp? Like, What does he stand to gain from from leaking that stuff. Because he, he, thinking that pe- people think he's trying or he looks good or he's not washed. Like, I don't know. But maybe even if it was like, okay, the specific game he was going to play, perhaps I could believe it was the Nets leaking that. But mm-hmm. the stuff all year about how good he's looked in private workouts and all that, like, I think that's coming from them, that from him and his team, not the, not the Nets. The other thing I was going to say too, and I mentioned this, I kind of mentioned it as a joke last week and comparing him with Kat. But... I can bring it up now in a more serious matter. Seriously, if you're the kind of guy who is not playing because you're dealing with mental health stuff and you kind of want to stay out of the limelight for now, why after practice are you telling Nick Friedel, who works for ESPN, works for one of the biggest broadcast partners of the NBA in the world, hey man, get make sure you get this, and then throwing down this routine. Like every step of the way, it's Ben Simmons wants to stay in the conversation, but then also, oh, God forbid we continue to criticize him because he's also said it's a mental health issue. Like, here's the thing. You, if, if anyone knows me, and we'll find you new, I, trust me, I very much appreciate the eclectic fashions of the NBA. I've gone, I, I love the fact that NBA players, unlike a lot of guys in other sports or in some sports, they have personality to their wardrobes. They, like, I'm a big fan of it. I love fashion. But I also, okay, even me who sometimes will wear some 
louder things. I'm also quite aware that when you wear certain things, you want the attention on yourself, especially when you wear those things on national TV, sitting on an NBA bench. So it was the same thing. If you looked at like the outfit Ben wore in the second last game of that series, I think, or the last game, I can't remember what it was. And then everyone starts making memes about it. And again, you had some people, not going to name them here, in the media or others saying, well, we, you know, you, come on, take it easy on him, guys. Like he's come out and said he's got mental health issues. Like, like again, everything he's done or like these leaks or the thing with Fidel or the things he's wearing courtside in nationally televised games on the, one of the most covered teams in the league screams, I still want some of the attention. I still want some of the spotlight. But then at the same time, if you criticize him for the fact that, guess what? He played like trash in a playoff series. It looks like it affected him. Fair. But then if it has affected you that much that you can't play basketball and you need to take time away, whatever, then go do it. Go take that time away. Go do what you need to do for your well-being and for your mental health. But I, it bothers me that there is still plenty of evidence that he wants to stay in, in the spotlight at least somewhat. He still wants part of the shine or part of the attention on him. And then there'll be people that be like, but if you criticize him, you know, you can't do that because he's brought up mental health. No, sorry, you can't have it both ways. Don't be a fugazi about this. And that includes the people that cover him. If you want to say, I don't want to talk about the mental health, that's fine. But you can't say he's immune to criticism or we can no longer talk about him because he's said it's a mental health issue when he pretty clearly still wants to be in the spotlight. I'm sorry. That's all I have to say about that. I think you make some very valid points. I think it's also fine to say, I don't want to touch the mental health stuff because I don't know what's in his head and I don't know what he's Agreed. going through. Agreed. I'm just saying he's, he's not impervious to criticism based on the fact he is still put again. This is not him going away. Like a good example, you know, an unfortunate example, but in the NHL this past season, Carey Price missed almost the entire season. He was clearly going through some something, asked for privacy, and people did not encroach on that because this guy was away. Like everyone knew what it was. There was a, you know, a mental health issue. He took time away. He like, Ben Simmons has not done that. Ben Simmons still wanted to be in the spotlight. And that's what I'm saying. You like people will leave you alone and let you deal with what might be a, a legitimate mental health issue. If you want that and you want that space and you take the time and you go do what you need to do for yourself. But that's all I'm saying. You can't still want to stay in the spotlight, but then also be like, but no, but no one can criticize me or have other people on your behalf say, no, no, but we can't criticize him. Even though he's still staying in the spotlight and doing things that could be worth criticism because he has said it's a mental health issue. It, that that actually wasn't the guise under which he missed these games, right? Like, whether you believe it or not, the explanation was that he was dealing with this back, back. issue. Yeah. So maybe it's not a mental thing. Maybe it's purely physical. I mean, it's probably some combination of both. Fair. But I hope for both Ben Simmons' sake and for the Brooklyn Nets' sake and just for, like, as a fan of basketball, who wants to see Ben Simmons play? Because... I think he is in many ways a really good player who could really help this Nets team. I Agreed. would love for him to just come out, have a full training camp and solid offseason that gets him in the right physical and mental space to put his best foot forward next season. And we get to watch that happen. Like that would be Agreed. great. If, if yes. for no other reason than I like, I'm like tired of hearing about this and talking about it, you know, and I, I'm not, that's not a shot at you. I just, it's just a lot, know. you know, all of this no, is a lot. So, so my, that, my last word on it is just if for people that think he should be impervious to criticism, you're a fugazi. <laughs> um, so there are two series that are over right now. There might be two more if you're listening to this on Thursday, but right now it's Wednesday afternoon. Uh, 
Warriors, Nuggets, and Bucks Bulls are going tonight. I think it's it's entirely possible that both those series will end tonight. But for now, there are two series that are done. The other one is can, Hawks. Can I can I interrupt you uh, just one second there, Wolf? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, do something different today, and I'm gonna because you just slightly referenced uh, Warriors Nuggets. I'm gonna get our fan shout out of the week out of the way right now, just because I do want to mention this. So. This is a different one because this was actually from a comment left in the in-app article that we embed the podcast in. So this is from the actual score app. So I don't I don't have this person's information or name. I just have their username. And it was Mastin3747 on the score app. M-A-S-T-I-N-3747 on the score app. I wanted to shout you out because one, we appreciate you list, uh, taking the time to listen to the show. We appreciate you supporting the show. You you left a comment in the last episode saying that we were a tease. You said, what a tease you guys are. I tuned in uh, hoping for Warriors analysis because last time uh, you told me to wait until the next episode to hear Warrior stuff. Then I waited an hour and five minutes only to be told, well, the Warriors are going to be going deep in this postseason so we can talk about them later. At least you gave Dre a little love there at the very end. So Mastin3747, I do want to let you know that we did we see you and we hear you and we do appreciate the feedback and we do appreciate you listening there is no anti-warriors agenda or conspiracy here where we you know purposely didn't talk about them we want to and we at, at some point in this postseason multiple times in this postseason we will talk about the warriors and i hope that you are still a listener by the time that episode rolls around it's just that we haven't had the time to get to them yet um, despite the fact we want to, and we're not going to get to them again today. So uh, I'll give you that. But I, I did want to get that in there, Wolfon, because you mentioned that series, and I know we're not going to talk about it. And I just didn't want Mastin 3747 waiting around another 65 minutes and then realizing. So at least this way we're being honest with him, and we're hoping he'll stick around another 35 minutes anyway, and then for an episode after that when we do talk Warriors. Okay, so that series not over yet. The, the Nuggets staved off elimination. But uh, the other series that is over is Hawks Heat. And I think we should take a few minutes at least to give the Heat their flowers. They closed the Hawks out last night without Jimmy Butler or Kyle Lowry available to them. And I I just think their defense is outrageously good. I mean, they had Trey Young in hell for that entire series. And we can talk a little bit about how and why. But I just thought, you know, a neat little bookend and a way to sum it up. One for 12 with six turnovers in game one. And then two for 12 with six turnovers in game five. That right there, those bookends of a really rough series for him. Didn't he end up with more turnovers than made buckets, made field goals? the, The more telling stat to me actually was as many turnovers as assists. Yeah. Like that's because it's not just like they're throwing a ton of pressure at him and obviously they were going to turn him over a bunch and maybe take, take him away as a scorer, but he was still going to pop off as a playmaker because of all the extra bodies he was seeing. No, only 30 assists to to 30 turnovers. You know, they didn't let him get off as a scorer or as a playmaker and they turned him over a ton. I mean, that's really hard to do against a player as talented as Trey. And uh, it's funny because like, this is basically what I expected to happen to him last postseason, And none of the other defenses he saw were able to do this to him. Not even the Bucks defense, which was like historically good last postseason. They didn't really have a great answer for Trey Young and pick and roll. And the Heat just shut off his water. 
some of it was missed jumpers and floaters that he ordinarily makes, but he was not able to penetrate, wasn't able to get anything at the rim. I think he was like flustered by all the pressure on the ball that he was seeing uh, and all the different coverages that he was seeing. Like the Heat were just mixing it up. And that was probably the key to me, right? Like he couldn't get comfortable against any different look because they were just changing it up. They were blitzing him or picking him up full court. They were showing him zone. They were doing all kinds of different things. I mean, the base was switching and the switching was the most effective part of it just because they flatten the Hawks out. They take away the pick and roll game. They take away the pick and pop game, you know, with with like guys like Gallo and Herter and start to finish all the different guys that, that played terrific on ball defense against Trey, you know, from, from Kyle Lowry to Gabe Vincent to Caleb Martin, Max Struess, like on and on and on. Uh, they, they made his life hell and it wasn't a good Trey series. And I, he deserves blame for that. But I think yeah. more than that, the heat just deserve a ton of credit for how well they defended. Yeah. So yeah. Any, any other thoughts on that series? I think that it speaks to something. I'm pretty sure you mentioned it a couple weeks ago and I know it was, you know, in years when you doubted the Heat, you and a lot of other people, myself included, one of the biggest concerns that we referenced so many times was the fact that players that they relied on to keep their offense flowing were players that detracted from their defense, right? Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero as well. And with the emergence of players like Struess and Martin and Vincent, and um, look, I don't; these guys aren't quite the offensive players. Obviously, of Duncan Robinson are definitely not a Tyler Hero, but they have found more guys that can contribute on both ends where they can survive on both ends with those guys in there as opposed to being like, well, player X is in there now. Okay, we're sacrificing defense to go all in offense. Or player Y is in there. Well, okay, we've made up the gain on defense, but yeah. now we're playing four on five. They, they've, they've filled those roles now with guys. That's why Which Duncan is why Robinson's Duncan Robinson's like out of the rotation. Exactly. His minutes have almost evaporated this season. So I, I think they're a better balanced team on top of also being, you know, better and more talented overall, getting Kyle Lowry and stuff. But yeah, and then you see how in a game, even without Lowry and Butler, they are still able to stay afloat and and remain this balanced team because of those minutes now being filled by those guys in general i just think this team is so deep well coached well balanced as i was just saying i mean i look i still against a really really good team you know deeper in the playoffs i still want to see what the half court offense looks like and with lowry consistently in there with the other guys, I still want to see how we can elevate that half-court offense. I don't know if it's too late in the year now to expect that that you know, turnaround is going to come. But the Heat have pleasantly surprised us at various points. And last night was another example of that. So I'm not ready to count them out yet because of that, those half-court offensive issues. Because I do think between Spolstra and Lowry and even Jimmy, playoff Jimmy especially, 16-game Jimmy, I do think they can figure it out. And also, I mean, again, he didn't play last night and they still got the win anyway. But the first three games of this series, man, Jimmy looked incredible on both ends of the court. Probably the best defensive work I've seen from him in a couple years. The best overall play I've seen from him probably since the bubble when he dragged the heat to the finals. Like, and if now we, I guess we have to see what's going on with this knee issue, which I also got to say, I'm super confused about it because on one hand, it was bad enough or painful enough or whatever for them to sit him in a playoff game. And I get it. They were up three, one, they, we're obviously and rightfully so feeling confident about their chances of closing that series out without him. But I did think it was odd that 
on one hand, they're holding him out of a playoff game because of this issue with his knee. And on the other hand, they're saying, but we don't think there's any need to get it tested. And that's what I was confused about. It's like, well, let me clear up the confusion for you. <laughs> they rested. They him. do. They they do not think the Hawks are a serious team. Right. No. That, and that's they were a hundred percent right. Right. And so, what my point was going to be, if that's just what the case was, and I agree with you, and we don't really have to worry about this knee issue with him, and they're going to get the Jimmy Butler that they had in games one to three, as amazing as Jason Tatum is, and obviously Giannis Antetokounmpo, who I think we both believe is the best player on the planet right now. And those guys are probably better overall basketball players than Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler in playoff Jimmy mode and what he looked like in games one to three can at least go toe to toe with those guys. Can can is good enough that the Heat can go into matchups against those guys and think it's possible we might have the best player on the court tonight. And if that's the case, plus their depth, plus the defense, plus Eric Spolstra, the Heat do have a chance to get through the East. Would I pick them right now? No, but the things are lining up where it does look like they definitely have a chance to actually live up to the number one seed that I don't think either one of us really truly believed in. I think Boston's defense would completely... I mean, maybe not completely because he he is an extremely good player who has just made mincemeat of the Hawks' defense from the middle. But I think he would have a really tough time against that Celtics defense. And just looking toward the next round, I think it's going to be interesting because... I think he could continue to eat against Philly. I don't think that he could against the Raptors. And, and I think that's pretty fascinating. Like if, if they get Philly next round, I think that's a good, that's a good Jimmy series. I'll say that. Well, this was going to be my follow-up point. Well, one, that would be incredible to watch Jimmy feast on the Sixers. But my follow-up question was going to be when we did our playoff preview pod a couple weeks ago, you mentioned that you thought, I can, you know, now that I think about it, I can't remember if it was on our playoff preview pod or on Trills in Philly. But either way, when we were talking about it on some outlet, uh, you mentioned that you would pick whoever wins the Toronto-Philly series to beat Miami in the second round. Based on the way the Sixers-Raptors series has gone and based on the way the Heat dispatched of the Hawks, do you still feel that way or has your thinking changed? I, I would definitely pick the Heat over Philly. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I would I'm, pick them over both teams, to be honest. But I, I'm not. I'm not 100% sure I'd pick them over the Raptors right now. Wow. But but like that's fully healthy Raptors, which I don't know if we're gonna get, given yeah. what's going on with Fred. I, I also think you know a sneakily important thing for Miami, and we have to see if Depot? it continues. But yeah, man, the the emergence of Victor Oladipo could be really crucial for them. And I, I always thought from the moment they got him that he was going to be a perfect fit there defensively. I think he fits that scheme so well because he's a really good off-ball defender with just like a a great understanding of space and how to play between two guys when they're zoning up or when they're sending two with the ball. Plays really well in the gaps. And I thought the the last two games when they finally kind of unleashed him as a nail defender, he was so disruptive. Uh, And I I just think he's, he's perfect in that defensive scheme. But the bigger revelation was him actually giving them a lot of offensive pop when they needed it, right? Like Lowry goes out and they very much need that secondary ball handling and creation. And again, it's it's against Atlanta's defense, but it was really nice to see him shake loose, hit some jumpers, get to the rim, and provide a, a pretty steady hand as a, a, a secondary ball handler, which is Honestly, not something we've seen from him in the last couple of years. Like his jumper's been way off. His handle's been kind of shaky. His finishing at the rim, which is still a bit of an issue, but like uh, that that could be an important piece for them in terms of 
maybe helping to solve the half court offense issues. But I actually think even more than that, it's actually just avoiding the half court altogether because I think where he does his best work is in transition and semi-transition. And if he can help them like punch up the pace a bit, then that could be a really important ingredient in them surviving offensively. But um, yeah, I still, I, I agree with you. I still don't like the idea of a team with title aspirations, even having to have that conversation though, where it's like, well, if we can just avoid the half court altogether, you know what I mean? Like, you can get through round one and maybe round two, but you're not winning a title if the conversation still comes down to you know. Let's no, I, yeah, let's obviously try. they're not avoid. But, they're not avoiding the half court altogether. But, but I mean, but you spending, get what I mean. Like if 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 that half court offense doesn't improve, they're not winning a title. I get what you're saying, and yes, all the people can speed them up and ensure that they do end up in transition more frequently or just playing with a bit more pace. But at the the, the half court offense will have to be better to even get through the East, let alone win the title. Um, okay, before we close this part of the convo off uh, and take a break, let's do like five minutes on the Hawks because this, this was a team that came into this season with pretty substantial expectations, possibly misplaced, but they they made the conference finals last year. And did, did that involve them playing uh, overachieving Knicks team that was never all that good? And then a, a Philly team that pissed all over itself in the second round? It did. The most fraudulent but, of teams. But guess what? They also had a 2-2 series against the eventual champs. You know, like they they played really well in the playoffs last year. And they they didn't even finish top eight this year. They had to go through the play-in as a nine seed to get into the postseason proper. They go out in five games with Trey having a terrible series and them losing the closeout game against a team that didn't have two of its three best players playing. It's kind of an ugly season for the Hawks. And I'm curious about just like your take on what happened with them. You know, was it a case of the expectations being set too high in the first place? And and before you do that, actually, I do want to add for context that John Collins was clearly not himself when he came back in this series. Clint Capella didn't even play until game four. And so if you're thinking about, you know, Trey struggling and not really looking like himself as a pick and roll operator it obviously matters that he functionally didn't have his two most frequent and best role men available to him in the form to which he had grown accustomed. And in terms of the switching specifically, I think Capella is like one of the best screen slippers in the league and he he wasn't there. Uh, and then when he was, he was basically a shell of himself. And as much as I like Okongwu long-term, offensively he's still a long way away and and his timing and pick and roll just isn't there uh he, he made a couple nice short roll passes when trey got blitzed but all in all he didn't stress miami's defense at all so i do think that was part of it and worth mentioning if we're going to talk about why the hawks flopped 100 percent health and and the health of those two guys was a huge factor in it i think the hawks future might not be as bright as it looked after they made the conference finals so early in their kind of build last year. But I also think it's a lot brighter than it seems after they just got sent packing by a debilitated Heat team. So much of last year, and I've talked about this so many times, but like so much of last year, and especially down the stretch, once Nate McMillan took over, but more, more importantly, once the playoffs started and once they got healthy last year, was that they defended... Well, is 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 a you know strange term, but they defended well enough, okay. Which, but defending well enough, being like a middle of the pack defensive team when you got Trey Young at the point of attack, is like an accomplishment. Seriously, 
And they were able to finally find combinations and a scheme and all that that worked to just play, you know, keep their heads above water on the defensive end. And for the most part, if you can keep your head above water on the defensive end and you have Trey Young with good rollers and good pick and roll players around him and the offense will be pretty close to elite because of that because he's that brilliant on the offensive end and as a pick and roll maestro, you're going to be a good team if those two things happen. This year, DeAndre Hunter gets hurt and misses a bunch of time again. I, I can't, I, you know, I'd have to go check how many games he played, but it, it wasn't enough. Like for one, going into next year, they need DeAndre Hunter to stay healthy because he really is such a key to their defense. Between you know, Capella staying healthy, but also another year of a development for Okongwu and hopefully him becoming a little bit more polished on the offensive end so that he can play more minutes and let the defensive upside kind of take over. Because if you look at lineups this year when Hunter and Okongwu were both on the court, they defended really, really well. Even in lineups with Trey Young on the court, with with Trey Hunter and Okongwu on the court this year, I think it was, it was a few hundred minutes. It wasn't a massive sample size, but it was a decent sample size. And they defended at a rate like in line with like the third or fourth ranked defense. Again, that's with Trey Young on the court. Like if, if they can have Okongwu on the court, which he would have to get better offensively to do, they could be good defensively. Um, you know, maybe maybe Okongwu just develops enough where. Next year is one of those types of seasons where like Capella is still starting and playing the majority of the minutes, but it's maybe instead of like 32 and 16 or 30 and 18, maybe it's like 26 and 22. You know what I mean? And that also decreases the load on Capella too, who hasn't always stayed healthy in his career. I I still think if this team stays healthy and they get the development from guys that they should, there is still enough there that they could be a scary team in the East. Now, maybe that's me being naive or relying too much on last year, but I I just look at the talent there. I think they have some important decisions to make. Like Gallo's contract next year is not fully guaranteed, and it like guaranteed would be like twenty one million. I don't think they want to tie themselves to that. Uh, Bogdanovich, I believe, has one year left, and I know there's been trade rumor, uh, like reports there. Collins, they've got locked up now. I, I I don't think they should move him. I don't know if they'll explore doing that again. But again, I think if they, Collins is. I- they 100% should not move him. He he is actually no, that's such a perfect fit next to Trey, and and that's I what. Agree. That's what frustrates me about like all the trade rumblings around him is like, he's perfect. He's perfect fit no, next dude, to Trey. He really I is. And that's what I'm saying. If he's like, I don't want to just boil this down to all well, they, you know, they weren't healthy. Cause I get it. A lot of teams weren't, it's no excuse. They weren't good enough flat out. And they couldn't replicate the de- the defense being even middle of the pack, which is what propelled them last year, given the, the great offense Trey Young could carry. But, but at the same time, if they are healthy next year, like if you give me, all those guys playing like 75 to 80% more of the season between Trey and Collins and Hunter and Okongwu just developing and Capella staying healthy. Like that's, that's a playoff team in the East, but it's like, how, how do they take that next up to be a consistent series winner, a consistent team that's in the second or third round, as opposed to it being a flash in the pan. I still think it's, it's just all about concocting a middle of the pack defense because the offense is going to be there with Trey and pick and roll players around them. So I don't know. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Like, do you agree that it's, as simple as if those guys are healthy, they can replicate that. I think it ended up being like a 16th, 17th ranked defense um, down the stretch of last year. Do you think that's replicable with those guys healthy? Or do you think there are scheme adjustments that need to be done? Or is a roster overhaul necessary? How do you see it? I think they're always going to have a hard time fielding an above average defense with Trey. I think the, the, the roadmap for them is be overwhelming on offense and competent on defense. Right. And they right. had the they had the number two offense in the league this season, but 
I think what 26th in defense, something like that. So they right. weren't. Yeah, they went. They went from 17th or 18th to 26th defensively right. year to year. And then and then their offense completely fell apart in the first round, which is obviously that that's the issue, right? If your if your defense is like competent at best, the margin for error is slimmer offensively. Like you can't afford to have an offensive letdown if you can't rely on your defense, and that's where they're going to run into issues. And you know, we we mentioned kind of the reasons for that not to excuse Trey's awful play in this series. He was really bad, but obviously not having, well, Collins played, but again, I don't think Collins was Collins in that series. So like not having two of the three guys that basically form the bedrock of your offensive base, which is, you know, the double drag pick and roll obviously had something to do with, with them falling apart at that end of the floor. But I just think it takes a lot to protect a defender as vulnerable as Trey Young. I, I do think the first key is if you have an elite rim protector, which Capella was two seasons ago, that's what makes it tenable. Uh, last, and obviously, last season, you mean? Sorry, last season, yeah. yeah. Like this past season, I think he was fine, but not yeah. good enough he, for he what he needed. He slipped defensively from what he was last year to this yeah. year. And I think maybe Okongu could be that guy, man. Like he, he's, yeah. Okongu's really good. Uh, he could be special then, defensively. And then, of course, you want to have... You know, I don't think DeAndre Hunter is enough. Like, I think you need more insulation on the wing. I don't know what kind of options they're actually going to have in terms of adding that type of player, but I think they need they need more uh, defensive wing help. So there's that. I, I don't know, man. But, but Trey's like such a special offensive player. They're always they're for as long as he's there. Like, they're going to be a pretty good team. But as far as taking the next step, I'm really not sure. Let's take a break there. Uh, we'll come back and we will talk about two of the series that are still going on what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android that's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores updates and breaking news and don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash. Grizzlies, Wolves, probably the most interesting, chaotic, competitive series still going. That Game 5 last night was a novel. I don't even know where to start with that game. But the Grizzlies pull off another big comeback or the Wolves gag away another big lead that's like glass half full or half empty however you want to look at it but uh basically i think the wolves kind of the story of the series honestly is like they have consistently played well enough and i think they've been the better team for for the bulk of this series which is surprising to me because i didn't think it was going to be that competitive but they have consistently played well enough to put themselves in position to win and then shoot themselves in the foot so last night, they are up 11 with Jaron Jackson fouled out of the game. Disappointing series for him, to say the least. Up 11, Jaron fouled out. And from that point on, their offense was just a disaster. And John Morant, who had a really rough game, honestly, up until late in the third quarter and into the fourth, started to take over. Brandon Clark was unbelievable. Once again, you know, the Grizzlies' depth is kind of their saving grace. And uh, and they pull Brandon out. Cl- Brandon Clark, I'm exaggerating, but Brandon Clark might have had 35 offensive rebounds in the last seven <laughs> minutes. That Like, it it really felt like 
any missed Grizzly shot just ended up in Brandon Clark's hands and he was keeping possessions alive. Defensively, I also uh, liked him down the stretch of that last six or seven minutes. And I like that they had him kind of stashed away on one of Beverly or McDaniels for a lot of those possessions. And then we're using him as kind of a helper and, and a guy that yeah. was then filling the lane because he's not that worried, obviously, about McDaniels or, or, or even Beverly. So I liked that look from Taylor yeah, Jenkins. Yeah, and guess what and made that work? What made that work was freaking Dylan Brooks as the I was primary say, on cat. So, and and here's where it's like a little column A, a little column B, where I want to praise Dylan Brooks for the work he did on cat, but cat deserves some criticism too. I'm not going to rant about it again like I did last week. You wrote about it, about the ways he and the Wolves can help himself. And I thought he was great in game four to tie the series. And I thought he was really good, honestly, on both ends for the majority of game five. Down this stretch, and actually after Jaron Jackson fouled out and Brooks was guarding him on every single possession, is when I thought Cat reverted to some of those bad habits where he was allowing himself to get pushed out to the free throw line extended, if not further, more like the perimeter, wasn't backing a guy like Brooks down to get better post And then a lot of times just wasn't getting involved in the, in the actions at all. Like there was a lot of times where D'Lo or Edwards would come down and run some sort of pick and roll that Cat wasn't involved with or would be doing their own thing one-on-one. And Cat would have like Brooks or a couple times Bain actually on him in the corner. And there was like no movement at all on Cat's point. Again, I, I'm not going to put it all on him because – Clearly, there was like a you know a play calling and coaching thing there too, where if if the play was supposed to be for Cat, I'm sure it would have been. But again, it's it's a little bit of both for me, where it's like yes, they should be doing more to get him more involved and put him in better spots. But it's also like for the love of God, Cat, like come on, how many times can we be over this man? You've got Brooks or Desmond Bain on you in the corner. You see a possession that seems to be wasting away. Go do something. Go set a screen. Put yourself in a position where maybe you can rescue this possession and. That remains my complaint with Cat, where even on a night where he was good, those last seven minutes when they just needed something out of him, he took two shots in the last six and a half minutes on a night when he was good. Like, come on, man. But shout out Dylan Brooks. He, he did. He was awesome on him. Yeah, well, this is the thing, man. And it's the, I, I agree that it's a little column A and a little column B, but the Wolves need to recognize... like. It, and this is where I think this conversation needs a bit of nuance because people see, oh, Kat, you have Dylan Brooks on you. Back him down. Do you know how hard it is to back down Dylan Brooks from 25 feet away? It's yeah. literally impossible. Not just in terms of like, he's got a really strong base. He's not going to let you move him. But also like, you're probably going to pick up an offensive foul if you try to do that. So like I have said time and again, it's about where you're catching the ball. And I thought for the most part in this game, when the Wolves made a concerted effort to get Cat an early touch in the middle of the floor, things went pretty well. I do think there are times when like, hey, you're in the corner. Why don't you try and duck in? Like establish yourself in the post before catching the ball rather than just either catching it on the perimeter because you're spotting up or you're drifting out there or you're catching it out of the pick and pop. But at the same time, they they constantly have a non-spacer out there with Towns. Like they need McDaniels on defense. They need Vanderbilt on defense. And for rebounding purposes, and it's hard. It's hard for Cat to duck in and get any space in the post when there's a guy standing in the dunker spot that the Grizzlies are freely ignoring and helping off of. So I just think there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and, and it also points to something like that I'm really sort of scratching my head about, which is the Grizzlies going back to the too big look, like after shelving Adams in the series and then suddenly starting Xavier Tillman. 
where I just think they've been so much better when they've played with one big on the floor. And especially, you know, for a lot of the game, when Tillman's in, they're playing hedge and recover on the D-low cat pick and roll, which is putting the pick and pop back on the table, which they had completely eliminated with the switching. And then, you know, it's also gifting cat sometimes a four on three advantage and allowing him to catch the ball on the move which is everything that they're switching had taken away from him. Like it had turned everything static. And I just didn't really get it because I feel like if the Grizzlies really did feel like they needed to go back to the too big look, why not just plug Adams back in? Because he at least is, he's a more impactful offensive player than Tillman, right? So if you're, yeah. if you're going back there. But to your point, like I don't think they should go back to that too big look at all. Like I, I agree with what you're saying. And if you're going to do it, go to Adams. But how about just don't do it? Well, that's what I was thinking, and I like you've been better. You've been better on the court with the one big. If those two bigs are Jaron and Brandon Clark, then I think that's okay. fine because those guys are super mobile and they can guard anybody. But uh, I, I don't understand plugging Tillman in there. And then look, is it super surprising that at the end of the game, Jaron fouls out? Grizzly is downsized, went back to switching or putting Smalls on Towns, and and what do you know? They were able to slow him down again, right? Uh, Dylan Brooks is his primary, kind of took him out of the game, but. Uh, Brandon Clark, man, what a heroic performance at both ends of the floor. The activity level was just unbelievable. And in terms of the offensive rebounding, I mean, this is why I thought it wasn't a great matchup for Minnesota, even though it has proven to be a good matchup for them and a bad one for Memphis in a lot of other ways. The Grizzlies are this incredible, you know, hellacious offensive rebounding team. And all year, the Wolves have struggled on their own glass. So in that way, I guess it's not surprising it is still surprising to me, though, that they managed to get massacred on their own glass when the lineup the Grizzlies were running out to close was Brandon Clark, a dude who was six foot eight, playing the five, and four guards next to him. And somehow Minnesota still couldn't grab a defensive rebound. I mean, that's tough. So uh, I don't know. Kudos to Brandon Clark, but also like get your shit together, Minnesota. Yeah. Also, Another moment, not that he needs any more, but another moment of appreciation for John Morant too, who again, you know, didn't shoot the ball well, wasn't having a great night as you mentioned, but the lights come on, man. When the Grizzlies need him, literally, like, you know, call 12, as they say, he'll answer the call. And first of all, that dunk, I froze it like six times and cannot believe that it is humanly possible (laughs) to dunk that ball. If you pause it, when he's at his absolute apex and you see where he still is, he's like only halfway through the paint. He cocked it back so far that his arm (laughs) is in the back half of the paint. And if you freeze it, you'd be like, and someone was just like, what is about to happen after I press play? I'd be like, that human might die. The one that's in midair with his arm cocked back, he might die. And instead he ends up finishing the dunk. Like, there's the pure entertainment factor of watching this guy. And I talked about it last week too, when I was kind of like contrasting him and Towns, where I was saying, you know, like Towns and and this, and last night ended up kind of playing out like that. Where not even that I want to get into the like Towns doesn't have it thing, just more so of the, what I was saying last week where it's like Towns can have a good game and then he'll kind of leave you scratching your head at the end. Or you'll just be like, man, just finish it. It, The job's only half done. It's kind of what I was saying where it's like, he seems pleased with the job half done. And then jaw, it's like, even if he's at a horrible night, you can at least count on him in the end. Like, you know he's up for the challenge. You know what I mean? And, and it might not always work out. And maybe, you know, as he gets deeper into his career, I'm sure there'll be times where we question him and people question him about the shots he might take or whatever. But at least you know that the guy, like, he's going down trying. 
he's emptying the clip and between that dunk and even just the the play at the end which obviously yeah anthony edwards how about don't don't gamble for a steal on the perimeter in that situation but still like jaw taking it to the brim just being so goddamn relentless despite the amount of the, just the punishment he takes on what's really for an nba even for a point guard a small frame um i just can't i can't say enough about this guy and i know i've said it so many times probably sounding like a broken record but like i cannot say enough about john ja morant and just that like relentlessness he plays with and again if you know as much as i you know yeah sure i do have fun uh ragging on some guys when they when they don't show up or whatever i think it makes for good podcast entertainment but i equally enjoy i more so enjoy this when it's a guy that is the opposite where i can just be like man i love the fact that this guy just shows up and you know last week i was kind of making the comments about how if, if you're a timberwolf like i don't know if i trust uh towns as like on the court as a leader that he's gonna show up on the like if you're a grizzlies player like the one thing you could count on jaws like this dude's gonna be there man in the like you know what i mean you, you do not have to worry about if he's made for the moment i just can't say enough about him i have some i have a few things i have to say about cat but i'll let you talk about jaron first well Okay, but yeah, to the to the jaw point. I mean, first of all, that dunk was insane. Like, I, I actually think I've never seen anybody cock the ball back that far on a dunk. That that was what made it special. Was like the cock back was ridiculous. Uh, and I do think he was really good in the fourth quarter. But the extent to which he's attackable defensively is is worrisome, man. Like, you've got Pat Patrick Beverly like taking him off the bounce repeatedly, and yeah. You know, if if you're looking toward, you know, potentially a second round series where they're playing against the Warriors, like, I don't know, that's that's frightening. And I think it's actually interesting because I feel like maybe it came back to bite the Wolves a little bit in that fourth quarter where they got a little bit too mismatch hunty, where they're just every time down the floor, it's like, okay, let's find the guy Jaws guarding and let's have that guy screen and let's go after Jaw one-on-one. And I think once it became clear that that's all they were going to do, it became a lot easier for the Grizzlies to just sort of scheme for it and have that help tilted toward the ball, usually coming up from the baseline. And the, the Wolves just sort of like kept going to it. And I think it almost made them like too predictable and easy to stop down the stretch. But if Jock ja can't keep Pat Beverly from like getting two feet in the paint almost every time down the floor, that's that's an issue. And I also Fair think point. like, honestly, even before he threw down that dunk, I was like, is Jaw okay? physically because you remember he took that hard screen from cat in like i don't know game two or game three seemed to hurt his hip and i don't know it was kind of weird man like he didn't he wasn't getting to the rim he didn't seem to have that pop whether it was just like going to the floater or like trying to finish layups it just felt like he was unexplosive and honestly towns has been really good defensively but i don't think he should have as easy a time as he has had kind of defending the rim when jaw is coming downhill so up until that point i was like man i I don't know if jaw has it physically and if that's the case the grizzlies might be cooked because their half court offense looked disastrous up until that fourth quarter part of that's just they were like clanking every single jumper in sight and and some of those were good looks but also like we know shooting's an issue for them they thrive on downhill pressure and getting to the rim and so if they're not getting that element from Jaw and we have the shooting deficiencies, like I don't know how they can score enough to win the series. But then Jaw sort of, I mean, it wasn't even like hitting layups, honestly, apart from that last one, the game winner, obviously. It was mostly just like him getting to the free throw line. 
but they did find ways to kind of like at least get him going downhill into the teeth of the defense more. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at with Jaw. I'm like I'm really curious to see next game because I do think on the whole, like it wasn't a it, despite how it ended, it wasn't a great game five for him. No, it wasn't. Um and then Jaron, we we vouch for this guy, man, like picked him to be our defensive player of the year. Consensus have, have like consensus found the wrong defensive player of the year. Have railed against Taylor Jenkins for fouling him out of games and not just like letting him pick up the six. Well, guess what? Taylor Jenkins let him foul out of these last two games, and he fouled out of game four after playing 23 minutes and then somehow one-upped himself and fouled out in 17 minutes in game five. And two of those fouls were on three-point shooters, one of which was on Patrick freaking Beverly. Like, At least we know Taylor Jenkins listens to Pound the Rock. Now it's time for Jaron. Now it's time for Jaron Jackson to get some tips from PTR. But no, yeah, I, I mean... He's been disappointing. He's had a disapp- he's had a disappointing series. I'd say he's had a disappointing series on both ends in a way because Agreed. the foul issues kind of go hand in hand with that, right? Like fouling is not good for the defense, but also him being in foul trouble means he hasn't been able to defend the way he's usually capable of. And look, I, they're obviously in position now to beat Minnesota. I don't think it's in the bag, but I think they should win one of the next two games. And and get to the second round. I wouldn't have picked them to beat the Warriors in the second round anyway, so I don't want to say, like, you know, Jaron playing this way is the reason they're not going to do it, but especially if Jaron is going to be... Again, this is the version of Jaron Jackson they're getting in these playoffs. Then they've got no shot to to make a deep run. Not that I thought they did anyway, but, you know, him being the guy that they're used to being at least gives them a shot. This version of Jaron Jackson, they're, they're not making a deep playoff run, and... And then, yeah, just the last thing I want to say about Cat, again, not going to go on the straight-up rant I went on last week, but I did want to point out a couple moments in that uh, late fourth-quarter stretch when he started to disappear because of his own fault, but also his team and coaching fault too. But there was the moment, I think they were up 13 with nine minutes left. He had just hit a three, and he shushed the crowd only to be on the losing end nine minutes later. But the more pressing issue for me was he turns it over, with about a minute 45 left, down one. And this he when, he, when way... he dribbled it off his foot? Yes. And I went back and watched this play like four times. And I was even like, I was going so Zapruder on this thing that I was like, I want to watch this possession compared to the way he was catching the ball like on previous possessions. And if you go back and watch that and you compare it to just the way he was playing even a quarter earlier, there was a lackadaisicalness with which he was operating on that. Like... It, he just was too lax. And then, okay, fine. It happens. You turn the ball over. Even in a big moment, good players are going to turn the ball over. But his first instinct after that turnover, again, now you, you're you just fueling, you know, one of the best transition, the best transition team, down one in a 2-2 series with a minute 45 to go. And his first instinct wasn't, oh, shit, I got to get back. It was to turn to the sideline referee and start complaining. Then he decides to start hustling back. He ends up too late back into the play and has to commit. Now, to his credit, he at least got back to commit a foul on Jaw rather than giving up the dunk or the easy two points. But Jaw ended up making both free throws anyway. And that also ended up being Cat's fifth foul. So there's just this like snowball of events where it's like, okay, the turnover and being lax in that situation, bad enough, but it happens. But then to to waste a precious even half second complaining to the refs Instead of getting back, like, dude, wait, they're not going to change the call mid-possession. Like, just start hustling back. 
Like these are the little things where they do add up, man. Like you cannot have your main, your star, your franchise player doing shit like this in moments like this. And yeah, it's a little thing. And maybe you could say I'm nitpicking because I ranted about him last week, but I've admitted, I've acknowledged, like he was great in game four and he was good for like 75 to 80% of this game. But going back to the whole like, you know, pleased with a job half done thing and how pleased he seemed and shushing the crowd earlier in that fourth quarter. And then like this stuff starts happening that like you cannot have that when you're trying to close out a playoff game, survive a playoff game, like, you just can't. Yeah, he complains too much. No doubt about <laughs> it. Like, he does. And, and I honestly think, I, I didn't see a foul on that play. He dribbled the ball off his foot. No, I think that was like, I, I honestly think that was muscle memory. Pure muscle memory. He turned the ball over, immediately looks at the ref, not even thinking about, oh, was I actually fouled on that play? That's just like his first instinct. He complains way too much. Um, okay, we are way over our, our allotted time here. So let's go pretty quickly on that, uh, Sixers wraps because... Before before we get to that, uh, here's a question for you. What do you think has been said more on Pound the Rock? Fugazi? Fraud? <laughs> Tin Man? Or we have gone way too far over our allotted time? Way too far over our allotted time, yeah. 100%. And that's a high bar, but... We say it pretty much every episode. But what can I say, man? I, I enjoy talking ball with you, and sometimes yeah. it's hard to get off the line. But let's um, let's let's go quickly on Raptors Sixers. Uh, Sixers were up three nothing, feeling good, playing great. Joel Embiid having a monster series, and now it's three two going back to Toronto for a game six. What do you think, man? Raptors are gonna come all the way back, pull off the first. Three nothing comeback in NBA history, or are the Sixers gonna you know what? gonna gonna pull themselves together and get this for, one over the finish line? For shits and giggles, yeah, I'll say yeah, the Raptors are gonna get it done. If ever there was a team that was gonna blow a three nothing series lead, it's the team that I said weeks ago was literally built to quit. When you look at the cast of characters on this team, look, at, you know, no no heart involved, no bias involved. And you just asked me, Sixers are up three two. What's going to happen? I'd say it probably goes with my original prediction, which was going to be Sixers and seven. The Raptors will win game six at home and Sixers will win in game seven. That, the smart money should still be on that. But again, I mean it when I say if there was a team and a cast of characters built to be the first to blow a 3-0 series lead, it's these Sixers and also credit to Toronto because if there's a team and a coach and a cast of characters that are built to just kind of keep weathering the storm and find a way through it, it's probably these Raptors. So, you know, fair points to both sides. The one thing I'll say on the Sixers standpoint is you asked me last week, or I mentioned last week when we were talking about the the heat and the Celtics, I think. And I said, in the end, you know, we talked about how the East was deeper more than it is top heavy. And it's, it's filled with a lot of frauds and this and that, but that in the end, it looked like the teams that ended up with the top two seeds. And this was also after we were talking about Middleton being hurt now in Milwaukee too. I was saying it looked like the teams that ended up with the top two seeds were going to be the top two teams in the end. And, at the time, you sounded surprised. And you said, really? Like, not Philly? And at the time, they were up 3 nothing. And I said, you know what? I'll save it for next week's pod. Now, I'm not going to call myself a genius and say, oh, it's because I knew that when we talked next time, it would be 3-2. No, I thought by the time we talked next time, the Sixers would already be, already be in the second round, and I would still be going on this rant. Now, it just works out better because they are starting to blow it, and I'm going on this rant. But the reason, even up 3 nothing, I said, no, I still didn't believe in the Sixers was because of what I saw from them, even in building that three, nothing lead and specifically what I saw from James Harden. And the fact that in game three, I saw him be hurt his thumb and start like shaking at his hand and, and 
and started looking tired also by the he he was phenomenal to close that game and hit the game when he shot but there were moments late in that game where like hands on his knees you could tell he was just gassed and he came up with that epic performance but the point is the way I looked at it is even coming into the playoffs and I said this if James Harden isn't something close to the old James Harden they're not winning a title they're not competing for a title they'll be maybe beat the Raptors have a good second round but like they're not competing for a title getting through the east without James Harden being something close to the James Harden of old, or even just the James Harden of that first like seven to 10 days in Philly. He looks cooked. He cannot get, the Raptors obviously were the worst matchup for him. I wrote about that, but still, he's not getting by anybody consistently. He's not getting to the rim or finishing from, I think he's shooting like 30 something percent from two point range. 37%. There you go. So, you know, people, the haters, the, the James Harden naysayers can say what they will about while well, his game was always just step back threes and free throws. But like, no, his brilliance was that he could do those things, but also he could beat almost any, despite the fact that he didn't seem like the most athletic guy or the quickest guy, his first step, the uh, the craft in his dribbling, like all of that allowed him to consistently get in the paint and then completely dissect your defense from there, whether it was his playmaking or his individual offense. If that part of his game is no longer there, he's still been a pretty good playmaker in this series. But if all he's got is the step back three and maybe tricking you into free throws, like if if defenses can now play him where they don't have to worry as much about him getting into the teeth of his defense, that also impacts his playmaking. Like it, a lot goes with that. So if he is the player that he's looked like through five games of this series and for the majority of this past season, then they're not competing for a title. So no, I wouldn't put them with Boston and Miami and even look Tyrese Maxey's had a great year he had a great first two games he's a young player like you can't count on that from him understandably so for an entire playoff run and the Raptors have started to figure him out he's not the best playmaker yet uh, they've changed the way they've played him they've changed the way they played Harden Embiid for as great as he was those first three games and yeah sure the thumb is obviously going to affect his on-ball stuff the thumb does not affect his conditioning or his footwork he like has happened so many times in postseasons past, which is part of the Sixers' problem because they put too much of a burden on him, but he has consistently looked exhausted by the time the playoffs get going, and that has contributed to some of those high turnover games we've seen in elimination games that I bragged on him before. He looks gassed again, and sorry, can't be the, the thumb injury. So like, there are a bunch of reasons why I said at the time, despite the fact they were up 3 nothing, that I didn't think the Sixers were on the par with Boston and Miami and Milwaukee, though if you take Middleton out, that's different. And I think it's only been reinforced over these last two games. We'll see what happens in game six and potentially seven. But regardless of whether they survive this series now, I just think they they look like complete pretenders to me right now. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe if Drew Hanlon listens to Pound the Rock, uh, he can take a break from finding a way to disparage Nikola Jokic at every turn and vouching for Embiid's candidacy. And he can think of some conditioning drills he can work on with Joel Embiid this summer and also some drills on not falling down. I think if Drew Hanlon really wants to boost Embiid's MVP candidacy, he should not be disparaging Nikola Jokic. He should be disparaging James Harden, honestly, because <laughs> it's actually incredible to me that after all these years of Embiid having to do all the heavy lifting in these playoff games and not getting the help he needed in terms of perimeter creation and secondary scoring, they finally get James freaking Harden, and it's still the same old story. It's still all up to Embiid, man. Like, the, the Raptors figured out way too late in my opinion but hey they figured out oh we don't have to send all this help to James Harden we can play him straight up switch every pick and roll let him pick who he wants to go one-on-one -on -one against we don't really care and quite honestly with Fred Van Vliet in the state that he was in looking very hobbled 
and not able to stay in front of anybody one-on-one. Like I love Fred and I think he had an amazing season deserving all-star, but like in the state that he was in, I think he was hurting the Raptors defense more than he was helping it. And this is a guy that I think deserves to be all, you know, an all defensive team guy this year, but like he wasn't staying in front of anybody. And so now literally the best that James Harden can do is to ISO against Gary Trent Jr. Like there were times in that game five when he was matched up against Precious Achua and he was calling for a screen to get Precious Achua off of him. And Precious is an amazing defender, but it's like, dude, you're James Harden. Like dancing with big guys is supposed to be your thing. And now the best you can do is like find Gary Trent and see if you can make something happen isoing against him. Like there aren't a lot of good options for him. And basically doing that switching and just playing those isos straight up without, I mean, they're they're definitely like, if he breaks through that first line of defense, the help is there at the rim and he's not finishing over that help. Like, like we said, 37% from two point range, but without sending that help towards him at the top of the floor, which was really where the Sixers were doing a lot of damage. All those possessions where Maxi was able to attack the tilted defense, catch and go, zoom right into the paint, that's all disappeared. Now it's like, oh, Maxi, you want to create something? Like, you got to do it from a standstill. Like, it's completely changed the shape of the series. And again, I just think it should have happened earlier. But I also think um, that, I was going to say, I also think that forcing Maxi to create from a standstill also exposes some the, that limited playmaking that I was mentioning because he's not he doesn't have that kind of downhill momentum right he's not getting this kind of runway to the rim or this head start catching at a standstill and having to survey the scene like it, it is exposing that limited playmaking which again I'm not even throwing shade at him I think he'll get better at, at that as his career goes forward and then you know the more he has the ball in his hands but right now he's not a great playmaker and the way the Raptors are now defending the Sixers, they're exposing that. Whereas the way they were defending them before, yeah, they were just letting Maxi basically yeah. get shot out of a cannon every time he caught the ball. Well, that's the thing. They, they've they inverted their defensive principles. But like they're they're defending Maxi now how they were defending Harden initially and defending Harden initially how they were defending Maxi. And it just makes so much more sense this way. You know, show Maxi the extra help and make him make a pass and show Harden less help and make him score. So yeah, it's a shame that it took them until game three to figure that out. And now they're behind the eight ball, but I definitely think they have a chance to win. And I also think, you know, look, things obviously don't always work out this way in, in the small sample size theater of the playoffs. But if you were expecting shooting variants to swing in one direction over these next couple of games, it, it would probably swing toward Toronto, man. Like it's already started to, because the Sixers were clanking away from deep in game five, but they're still at 41% from three in the series. Tobias Harris is still at 46% from three in the series. Like, and the Raptors are at 31%, I think, on wide open threes. You know, they're they're not a good shooting team, especially with Fred out, but you know, not not to that extent, in my opinion. So I think I would basically call this close to a toss-up from here on out. Like I'd say 60-40 Philly, just because they have the margin for error. They only have to win one. But the reason I still think it's close to a toss-up is it feels to me like the Raptors have figured the Sixers out more so than the Sixers have figured the Raptors out. Uh, and all those little matchup advantages that we expected to see in the series that very much did not bear out early in the series, we've started to finally see that stuff swing the Raptors' way. And th- their defense over these last couple of games has been so locked in. Like, they're yeah. not making the kind of mistakes they were making early in the series. And they've been able to make Joel Embiid's life really, really difficult with the double and triple teams without getting burned 
on the rotations on the backside. Like it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. And I don't know what kind of, like, if Harden's just going to be this guy from here on out, I don't know what kind of answers the Sixers really have for that. They're also attacking Embiid on the other end. They did that in game five. And again, kind of capitalizing on what I was talking about where he looks gassed and they're making him have to move his feet more on the defensive end and come out more and defend on the perimeter like that. That'll obviously add to that exhaustion. In terms of them figuring things out, I agree. Other than the fact they don't have the best player in the series the way they did against Milwaukee with Kawhi, this right now, the way I feel about the series right now and in terms of the Raptors figuring things out, I feel the way I did after the Raptors won game three against Milwaukee after going down 2-0 in 2019 where they survived that double overtime game where Kawhi was limping and I think Norm Powell had fouled out. and Had Lowry fouled out too? I can't remember. But after that game, I had joked a friend of the show, Alex Wong, not even joked, like tongue-in-cheek said in the media row, uh, the Bucs aren't winning another game because I had just thought the Raptors got them now. They figured things out that I didn't think the Bucs could counter. I do feel that way now, but the difference being that at that time, I thought the Raptors had figured the Bucs out and they had the best player in the series. The difference now, obviously, is that even a hobbled Embiid is still very capable of just having one game out of these next two where he goes for like 38 and 15. You know what I mean? Just completely demolishes everything in his path. And it doesn't matter that the Raptors have figured things out. He just gets it done. And I, I am very aware of that possibility. But from a tactical standpoint, the <laughs> yeah. Raptors have figured them out. Well, what's crazy about that too is if the Raptors had survived that overtime game three in this series, we'd be staring at the same situation, them coming yep. home. I mean, not that things would have played out exactly the same, but like very plausibly, if they had won that overtime game three, they could have very easily, I think, reeled off four straight and it would have been a, yep. a mirror of that series. And, you know, this goes back to what I was talking about in the Celtics net series, right? Where one team, sure, like in a vacuum has the best player, but there's this other team that doesn't have any weak links to attack on defense. And, you know, in the Sixers case, yeah, they have the best player, but A, the support pieces on offense aren't doing enough to alleviate the pressure on their best player. And B, they've got guys who, who the Raptors can attack at the defensive end. And I think actually the, the most telling stat to me in this entire series right now the Raptors' first shot half-court offense has been better than Philly's in the series. During the regular season, the Raptors were 26th in that stat. Philly was third. That was where Philly was supposed to have this huge advantage. The Raptors were supposed to make up for it like with offensive rebounds and forcing a ton of turnovers and getting out in transition. Like, No, they've been better in the half-court on first-shot possessions. And huge credit to Pascal Siakam. OG Ananobi, Precious Achua, like those guys have hunted mismatches. They've, especially in the last couple of games, found ways to attack Joel Embiid, like you said. I think that was a great adjustment for the Raptors because for a while, they were letting Embiid off the hook, right? Like they were letting him just camp out around the basket, not putting him in screening action, not really attacking him. And I think the adjustment to actually like put him in more action, make him move pull him away from the rim. Like that has really opened things up for them at the offensive end. So I think there's a lot of different ways this could go, but certainly a, a lot of situations in which this does end with the Raptors coming all the way back from 3-0 down. So your prediction, Joe Wolfon, which I know, I know you love to make on the spot predictions. It's your specialty on Pound Rock. Your it's favorite like, line, your favorite line in the world is gun to your head. Yes, I love to imagine a scenario where there's a gun to my head and I have to decide something that is completely Between two out of my NBA control. Teams. Yeah. 
Um, you have to decide between two NBA teams for your life. A very plausible scenario. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because I, I do think the Raptors are going to win game six. And so I'm like, all right, I picked Sixers in seven. Shouldn't I just stick with that prediction? <sighs> it's hard to imagine the Sixers losing game six and then winning game seven. Like, <laughs> it really is. But uh, I-, I will just... Because I think, again, they have the margin for error. I'll, I'll go Sixers and seven. I think somehow they find a way to pull themselves together and close it out. But it's uh, I think it's going to be tense for them. Yeah. My head says Sixers and seven, as it did at the beginning of the playoffs. My heart says, as Kawhi Leonard famously once said to his Toronto Raptors teammates, F that, let's get both. Okay. We're approaching the 90-minute mark here, so we're about double the time that we had planned to a lot for these episodes. Lots to discuss, so I, I don't really have any issues going over time because, honestly, these no. series have been super fascinating. I've really enjoyed this first round so far, and uh, I'm excited to see where all this stuff goes from here. Really quickly before we, we log off, I just want to say a, a quick correction from me about the Pelican Sun series, where I told you... You know, Chris Paul's been in a lot of adverse situations before. This is not one of them. No, it's one of them, man. Like, th- <laughs> this is an adverse series for the Suns and for Chris Paul, who looked gassed basically that entire game last night. And yeah, the Suns won fairly comfortably, but even when they were up double digits, I never really felt like they had a stranglehold on that game. It took a monumental performance from Mikel Bridges and some really questionable rotation decisions, I think, from the Pelicans in that game, which. Stop playing Jackson Hayes. At least stop playing him at the four. It's not working. They're punting those minutes. Barring that, like the Pelicans easily could have won that game. The Suns, I, I still picked them to win the series, but they're in a tough spot, man. And and Chris Paul having to handle so much ball handling responsibility with Jose Alvarado like nipping at his heels at every turn yep. is clearly taking a lot out of him. Yeah, th- this is this was my point last week. Like, and when I wrote about it too, it was that the Suns should still be the like favorite in the series, but that they were now in a position that was just too scary for me, where it was like, they, they are not separated by 28 wins, like it looks like in the standings. Like the Pelicans are a much better team than a 36-win team after they got CJ, once they got Larry Nance back. Their defense went from 18th rank to like playing at like a top 10 defensive level at once they got Nance as well. And for the first, last like two months of the season, now it had become a best of five where the Pelicans technically had home court advantage. I thought, you know, as, as much as we both love Chris Paul, I think at this stage in their careers, you can at least make the argument Ingram might be the best player left in the series based. Like, there were just so many things stacking up where I was like, I would still pick the Suns and Chris Paul and those guys to come out in the end. But I just thought it would the, the Pelicans were now evenly matched enough without Booker in the lineup in a 1-1 yeah. series where they can continue to win enough to just shrink the sample size enough to the point where, as I said last week, you get into that scary part where like what should happen might not happen anymore because you're now more susceptible to random shit undoing you. And again, the Pelicans get to win one more game to force a game seven. But I think you've seen that play out. Like this is no longer, you know, 64 win team versus 36 win team. This is a lot more evenly matched than that. And I will say you, you admitting that you were wrong about that leads me to say right now what I told you off air, which is that if the Sixers blow this, I will gladly come on next week and tell Joe Wolfon that he was right all along that James Harden was not an all-star this year. I can't believe you're not ready to do that at this point, <laughs> given what we've seen from him in the playoffs so far. 
uh, yeah. But uh, no, I agree. I think honestly, on paper, like with Booker out of this series, it, it's actually pretty close between the Suns and Pelicans in terms of overall talent. Brandon Ingram has been awesome. McCollum was rough last game. They need more out of him. And I think they might need to, to the Jackson Hayes point and the point about rotations in total, also might need to excise Devontae Graham from the rotation. His decision-making is yeah. such a mess, man. Dude, there was a possession in that game last night where he tried to ISO against Mikhail Bridges, got blocked, got the ball back, tried to go at him again, and got blocked again. Like, dude, come on. What are you doing? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> He's been um, rough. Uh, so, yeah. I I don't know. I, I could totally see that series going seven. And, again, given the, the load on Chris Paul's shoulders and his age, I mean, that's scary territory for the Suns. But, uh, once again, shout out to Mikhail Bridges, who had an all-timer last night. Yeah. And... Um, it's a fun one, man. A lot, lot of fun basketball going on. So we will be back on Friday. Uh, quick turnaround for us. But uh, we'll be back on Friday with, I am sure, a, a whole lot A Game 7 preview. <laughs> I'm sure a whole lot more to talk about. And yes, hopefully, for our purposes, a Game 7 preview to tee up. Could be all three of those series, honestly. Because I think they're all, they're all being played on Thursday night, right? Am I wrong about that? Raptors, Sixers, Grizz... Wolves and Pelicans Suns all going Thursday night. Uh, I'm not sure, but there's the Jazz Mavs or well. Like, I mean, I think I think we would both take. That's Dallas, not going. That, that series is over. Okay, it's, I agree. Uh, I agree. But technically, that could end up being, uh, I believe, a game seven on the Saturday with Raptors Sixers and potentially Pel Suns. And there's no technically, but I don't care. I don't care if the Jazz win Game Six. I don't care if they win the series. They're dead to me. They're done. I think we can uh, we can end it there. You did the mid-episode fan shout-out, so we don't have to do that at the end here. So uh, let's just put a bow on it, man. Um, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all on Friday. Pound the Rock. We'll get to Warriors, Mastin 3747.